Ready graphics? Ready theme? get in the building this is such a sitcom trope phil's a really cool dude welcome back ray slash bob and this is where we actually get the first real taste of the betty ford story (laughs) don't let the butt brains win don't let the butt brains win and on today's episode we'll be talking about season two episode three the memo that got away hi i'm lauren hey it's jesse and welcome to the murphy brown podcast if you didn't already know from our elaborate opening that you just listened to If you skipped past that opening, you aren't getting off that easily. We're still going to remind you that you're here at FYI. (laughs) This episode was directed by Barnett Kelman. Dun dun. And it was written by the team of Cy Duquesne and Denise Moss. And just to remind everybody, as we've spoken about in season one, technically, they are still not on staff. They are freelance writers. Yep. Which is crazy pants. Absolutely crazy pants. Considering how many episodes they do write for the first and the second season, it feels like they were on staff. Go back and listen to our first episode where we talked about Cy and Denise. I mean, they went on to do Frasier and Roseanne, you know, so their pedigree is really amazing. Exactly. And yeah, I'd be intrigued too to find out what what caused the shift from freelance to full staff like how many was it the number of spots they had or was it still like enjoying the fact that there were freelance opportunities uh, maybe they didn't want to be on full staff it's it's an interesting conversation i love i love finding out when people decide to make that switch or when mm-hmm. a production decides to bring someone on full time yeah well hopefully we'll have denise on soon and we'll be yeah. able to ask her about it But we are very excited to have another episode from them. And uh, Lauren, when did this one air? This aired October 2nd, 1989. Interesting. We're almost getting to the 90s. We're almost in the 90s, which we'll talk about in this episode. <laughs> yes. It you know it's funny. It it always bugs me when they refer to Murphy Brown as an 80s show because technically I guess they feel they have to because it started in 88. Mm-hmm. But it's such a 90s show to me. It, the majority, it's a 90s show. Yeah, the majority of it was on the 90s. The zeitgeist of Murphy Brown is the 90s. It's interesting to me, but it's always referred to as an 80s show and it's not to me. Yeah, and I I do find that fascinating because it 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 started during the transition from 80s to 90s. So even the part of the 80s that it was present in is that, you know, end of the decade adjustment. So if we're looking at quote unquote true 80s, it is interesting how many things were not present in this particular conversation. Yeah. And speaking of the 80s. Oh, do we have an opening montage for you, kids? (laughs) Oh, it's pretty great. It's there's a lot of highlights. Um, But before we get into the highlights of the opening, uh, Lauren, do you want to tell us about the song that's playing? Oh, yeah. So the song that's playing is Come and Get These Memories, performed by Martha and the Vandellas, written by Jesse. Holland, Dozier Holland. I love when you do that. It is the second single by the Vandellas under Motown's Gordy label. And it was released February 22nd, 1963. It has been recorded by everyone from the Supremes. I think that's the one I'm the most familiar with. Other people who have recorded this song have been Bette Midler. And one of my favorite Mm -hmm. albums she has, which is just her re-recording girl group music. It's fantastic if you don't know. I love that album. I forgot about that album, It's one of my absolute favorite albums. I love it. Come and Get These Memories became the group's first hit, reaching number 29 on the Billboard Pops singles chart and number six on the Billboard R&B singles chart. Funny enough, their next single was Heat Wave, and that came out in June. Now, this is why I'm mentioning when it came out, because that came out June 20th. 
But I'm realizing in a lot of this research is, I guess, back then, and please someone who is older, correct me, that the singles came out first and then the album was created. So this is obviously a new group, Martha and the Vandellas. They had a, a really a big hit. And then their next single, Heat Wave, obviously a hit. So Heat Wave, their second single came out June 20th. And then June 28th was when the entire album called Come and Get These Memories was released. So I think that's kind of interesting. And the album was backed up by the Funk Brothers, who we've also mentioned a lot on oh, the show. Those Funk Brothers. Those Funk Brothers. Great documentary. You guys should check that out if you don't know it. And now let's go into our opening. Excellent. So we have one of my favorite types of openings, which is montages about the subject of the episode. So um, skipping ahead a little bit, the episode, there's a kind of a B storyline where the gang is trying to put together a, a decade in review episode for the for FYI, the show itself. And so thus, we get to hear a lot of highlights from the 80s as we even the people watching the show, because this is in October, we're approaching the the turn of the decade. But also, we get to hear a lot of references to things that happened throughout this particular decade. So our opening montage, is a montage of some greatest hits from the 80s, starting with, well, may I just say, maybe not the greatest hits of the 80s. Let's be honest. That was a that was a misused phrase. <laughs> Definitely not greatest. No, no, no. I, Most of them are not so great. And some of them might seem great after the fact, I realized, because we're looking at it through a modern lens. But it's, I, I wrote it as scandals, big deals, fads, and debacles. <laughs> Well, yes, I will um, clarify that when I say greatest hits about this particular montage, to me, it's in a very, I like to sit back, eat the popcorn and watch the world burn kind of oh. greatest hits. Oh, I got that. Um, I got that. Enjoying, enjoying the scandals. <laughs> so the first thing we get to see is President Reagan being sworn in with the lovely Nancy standing behind him. The next thing we see is Ms. Vanessa Williams uh, being crowned the first ever African-American winner of Miss America, which is something we'll come back to later in the episode to discuss. Oh, we'll talk uh, about that later. Okay, relevant. I was wondering when we were going to talk about that, because that's important. It's, it's brought up by my beloved Courtney That's a good later, idea, So we'll yeah. talk about her then. And um, so the next clip is interesting because it seemed familiar to me, but I couldn't place it. Um, I, it was, it's an arrest being filmed, and I couldn't quite figure out why I might have seen this. Um, but Lauren was very helpful in this regard. Yes, and it's funny because, you know, originally we were supposed to record this episode back in the fall, and at the time, I had no idea what this was. I had no clue. And then a couple of days ago, a trailer came out for a movie about John DeLorean, and this is recreated in it. And it, mm -hmm. I, then I re did not realizing it, I was like, oh, this is familiar. Oh, I think I know this. And then rewatching the episode going, oh, my God, now I know who it is. See, everyone, this is actually why we waited to record this episode. We needed the information and the truth of the montage to be revealed to us. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that the DeLorean became famous from Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. But it had a long history, well, maybe not a long history, I should say, but it, it did not end in the best of circumstances. Mm -mm. So in October 1982, and, and you have to understand that the DeLorean was not out for sale until about 81. It took a really long time and it was plagued with a lot of problems. But still, interesting enough, is that he was arrested in 82 for trafficking cocaine. <laughs> Emphasis on the trafficking. Which I didn't hey. realize. I had just assumed that it was all a big mess about the DeLorean. So Yeah, I assumed it was like an internal scandal. But nope, just drugs. <laughs> yeah, uh, so he'll be played by Alec Baldwin. That's not a joke. <laughs> that actually tracks yeah <laughs> uh, continue so the next thing we see is we're back with uh, Ms. Nancy Reagan uh, and she is with Mr. T that's quite a specific <laughs> throwback for my brain it is is 
is that part of the say no to drugs thing? Or just, I think that's so. just an 80s thing. I mean, there's no, no one that's it, more 80s than Mr. T and Nancy Reagan. I mean, come on. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I think my brain assumed that had to do with the say no to drugs mm-hmm. efforts. But please correct us if we're wrong. Um, the, the next thing we see is the, for this generation at least, the OG royal wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Um, and those, uh, yeah, this was the the fairy tale dream wedding. This was the prince marrying a woman from the the common people as they saw it. It was the true Cinderella story. Those big 80s sleeves were living their dreams. This was before we had the full uh, scandals that would later occur. I love that you say that. Back when common was someone who had a royal title. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like that was considered common. I mean, compared to how far we've come. How far we have come. One of my first memories is my mother waking me up to watch this on Lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's weird because I, I have very specific memories of, of visuals of that wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the things I remember the most about her are, is the funeral. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That tracks. You know. The next thing, we have some really fun blasts from the past, which are the a panning shot of the Cabbage Patch Kids. I had way too many Cabbage Patch Kids. <laughs> Uh, it, and it, it makes it sound like my family was rich, uh, but it was over like a series of time. Like you can tell how old I was based on that. The first one is like completely trashed because I brought it everywhere and like put it on a swing and it fall in the mud to like the last one where I was probably too old for it. But it was when they came with a passport because it was Dutch. It was when they were they came out with Cabbage Patch Kids from all around the world. I remember those. Mm-hmm. And I, I took a picture with a Polaroid and like, you know, help, someone helped me put it in the passport. Uh, and so she was in pr- pretty good condition, although I think she got water damaged in the, the attic. So she's gone. But the, the story is that also one of my first memories is getting a Cabbage Patch Kid when you couldn't even get them on the shelves. Like, I don't know if people really realize, like, it was a craze. It was crazy. They were insane. The only way that I was able to get one the first time was my aunt had gotten, and again, I was so young, I should have asked my mother. I don't know what it was because you don't really get, you know, what's going on when you're such a small kid, but it was some sort of voucher. Mm. And we had to go to the back of the Toys R Us and and it didn't come off a truck. It sounds very black market. Right. <laughs> We had to go to the back of the Toys R Us, give them this thing. You know, I'm sure it was a, a time that we'd organized to be there. And they gave it to me from the shelves in the back, like in the storage room. Whoa. And that was how I got it. And I don't know if, uh, did you have a Cabbage Patch kit at all? Yeah, but okay. most of mine were, um, it, it was after the craze. Yeah. I think I had one or two, but they were not hard to find by the time I had them. There actually used to be a place not as nice Mm -hmm. as the American Girl doll store where you could go and you could have the Cabbage Patch kids would be like born out of a Cabbage Patch. Okay, that's terrifying. It was really terrifying. (laughs) The next thing uh, that shows up in the montage is the Trivial Pursuit Genus Edition, Mm. which is one of my favorite games ever created. I also... um, definitely apparently schooled my grandmother once on a question that was we were a team together and i was pretty sure the answer was debbie reynolds she shut me down and it turned out the answer was debbie reynolds my grandma always knew to listen to me that stuff always stays with you right when you're like i was right the whole time i was right the whole time she was so proud of me i was like 13 Uh, my proudest trivial pursuit moment was um english class in high school this is in the 90s our teacher decided to like let us all play trivial pursuit in teams Mm-hmm. But it was the 80s edition. <gasps> yes. And because I watched so much television, 
I got all the answers right. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I was this unpopular kid that no one paid attention to. And so people were like, what is going on? Yep. Like no one knew who Andy Warhol was or or how Dick Sean died, which is so obscure. (laughs) So (laughs) if anyone doesn't know, Dick Sean was in the producers. He literally died on stage. He said he was having a heart attack. They all thought that, you know, it was fake and he died, sadly enough. But he was John Ritter's dad on Three's Company. So, Mm -hmm. of course, I knew that story. And he's in fairytale theater. So that's a very proud moment for me. Well, and it's I was very similar. I found that one of my superpowers in life was trivia very early on because of that game. And also because Mm -hmm. I was the kid in the 90s playing the Genus Edition when in the late 90s and early 2000s, you started getting the new editions that were more specific or uh, more current and relevant. So I was always killing at the really old trivia (laughs) because I was still playing the OG Trivial Pursuit as highlighted in this montage. Um, The next thing we see is a flash of the uh, boat, very aptly named The Monkey Business. Yes, so if you want to know more about Gary Hart and his boat, Monkey Business, listen to our episode on the first episode of Murphy Brown Respect. Mm -hmm. It's really fun right now in season two as we're starting to hit things that we uh, talked about that were Mm -hmm. referenced in the last season, um, including the next clip, which is from um, The Trial of Ollie North, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit in the scene itself. But we talked about the Iran-Contra affair last season as well. Uh, Then there's a very iconic couple in white walking down the street. which um, Lauren and I both before this episode realized that we recognized and knew the name of the wife better than the husband um, because yeah. it is the iconic Tammy Faye Baker. I was like, John Baker? I couldn't <laughs> think of his name. I know he's terrible, but we all just know Tammy Faye so well. Yeah, no, but it's it, I had erased it from my memory and as with good one reason. should with t- uh, Jim Baker, probably. So for those of you who... Uh, may rec- recognize Tammy Faye, specifically in how her her character, as she's been become to be known as, uh, has been as recently brought back to our television screens as um, uh, last week tonight with John Oliver, where we have Rachel Dratch playing a Tammy Faye type character. Um, but Jim Baker uh, was the the former Assemblies of God minister and former host of the PTL Club which is an evangelical Christian television program. He's a televangelist. So he became particularly uh, notable in the late 80s when he um, had to resign from the ministry to to a cover-up of hush money paid to the church secretary, Jessica Hahn, um, for her allegations that he and a former co-host of the BTL club, John Wesley Fletcher, drugged and raped her. And when the information came out about them paying her for her silence, I believe it was something like $300,000 around there. He was forced to resign. There were also further uh, financial scandals after the fact, but that was the big, the biggie that made him have to leave his televangelist ministry. Not a good guy. <laughs> Not big fans of him. Tammy Faye, you are an icon, for better or for worse. <laughs> the next person we see is the Reverend Jesse Jackson. I can't even go into the details. <laughs> yeah, I'm su- I'm assuming that that was when he ran for president. Yeah, I mean, timing-wise, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the next thing we see is uh, Mr. Michael Dukakis, mm. the Democrat who opposed George Herbert Walker Bush in his presidential campaign. The images of him eating a hot dog, is that from Hot Dog Charlie's in New I, York? I don't know. I try to look it up. The reason why I was wondering if it was Hot Dog Charlie's is because I found an article from April of, of 1988 where they... Um, <laughs> 
they talk about him showing up in Troy, New York, going to Jimmy's lunch, to famous lunch, to Hot Dog Charlie's, and even to St. Basil Greek Orthodox Church as he's there visiting. The title of the article through AP News is Ethnic Excitement About Dukakis. Quote, he's Greek. <laughs> and it's an entire article about what a progressive move it was for a Greek nominee for the Democratic Party. Hey, or, you know, everyone was like, JFK is Catholic. <gasps> yeah, it's it's really interesting. Just it, they're talking about how in New York's uh, primary that the Greek American voters were rallying for Dukakis. Like it's all this kind of uh, stuff that was really interesting to see what was considered breaking the boundaries at the time. I'm not going to read a lot of these things because they're actually quite troublesome statements now. Uh, but that was very interesting. But the, yeah. the thing about this particular campaign and Dukakis's kind of downfall within it was actually from George H.W. Bush. Now, obviously, those who are listening know that he recently passed and, uh, you know, respecting his memory, I think also includes much of like we talked about uh, Scalia that we can also talk about the negatives. Absolutely. I found a very interesting opinion article from The Guardian from December of last year of 18. They talk about the kind of dirty campaign that Bush's side played against Dukakis. Mm. One quote that really stood out to me that I kind of forgot about was that until Trump, Bush presided over the most dispiriting low row campaign that I had ever covered. Ooh, interesting. And one of the things that and I, I remember the speech, the read my lips, no new taxes and those things that came out of it. But. One of the things was uh, the fact that it was considered kind of a scorched earth campaign and race against Michael Dukakis. And it's, this is just part I want to read to you that is often summarized by the name Willie Horton. Mm. Horton was a convicted murderer who raped a woman and killed her fiance while briefly released from prison under a furlough program for good behavior that Dukakis supported as Massachusetts governor. And the thing that I find interesting is the fact that they never showed Horton's face in the in the attack ads, but what they did was really highlight the revolving door of a jailhouse to symbolize a furlough program. And it closely aligned with the the playing on racial fears mm. by highlighting that a frightening image of an African-American murderer and the way that they used that to fight against Dukakis. Yeah, no, it's a very famous campaign ad. And I'm, yep. I love that you brought it up because it's something I think many people who maybe were too young at the time or not alive might not be aware of. Before you read the article, the first thing that Walter Shapiro, the writer, says is playing on racial fears and patriotism, 41's road to his one-term presidency was studded with unseemly tactics. And that phrase really stands out to me right now as the fact that that yeah. has not gone anywhere. So. Yeah, well, like we've talked about on the show before, you know, people act like all of this came out of nowhere. And we've been leading up to a lot of this for a very long time. Yeah, this is not new. Yeah. This is not new, unfortunately. So we find ourselves in the bullpen of FYI and the gang minus Miles and Murphy. So we have Jim, Frank and Corky are sitting around the table working very hard to which Jim says, this shouldn't be this hard. What do you think of when you think of the 80s? He says, glasnost, the rise of the religious right. Frank rep responds to him that they were actually duller than the 50s and that Reagan was just Eisenhower with more hair. My favorite thing about this, though, is that Corky, who's in a an amazing blue skirt suit oh, with so fabulous good. fluffy hair herself proceeds to just stare at her paper and in a sing-song voice say people in glass houses yeah 
that's 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 a good one. I, I it, appreciate a good hair joke. For, I appreciate a good hair joke. I also appreciate her refusing to look at him and Frank just angling his face in at her in response. <laughs> yeah, they 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 have a relationship now. This sort of yeah, every brother sister family thing, which you know was oh, brought up later like. by Miles. Yeah, yeah, I really like that we get to see their relationship. Mm-hmm. I we haven't gotten a lot of glimpses of Corky and Frank as as a friendship and that was really fun to see it was very natural and you can clearly see that it's from the actors being comfortable with each other go off each other and it, i think it even reflects into the revival where like it's now gotten to the point where like they throw barbs at each other but you know when frank gets hurt she's like where's my boy like you know she, they love each other it's great so jim brings up that this is his third decade in review show with one of my favorite lines which is you watch your entire life distilled into 50 minutes of hackneyed video clips scored to time in a bottle you know, it's funny watching this episode now because recently I was walking down the street and one of the electric billboards that we now have flashed CNN, the best of the 2000s. Oh. And I went, oh, God. I feel it's really real. old. I, I feel what Jim is feeling and I haven't lived as long as Jim has at I know. this point. Yeah. So I'm feeling it. So Frank is frustrated and stands up and finally just demands to know where Murphy is because she's definitely the first one there when they're doling out the Ollie North interviews, which, as we stated earlier, he was convicted in the Iran-Contra affair, which is a scandal in the second Reagan administration. Uh, We discussed before when we discussed um, Poindexter, which is another person associated with the scandal. Essentially, it was a secret facilitation sale of arms to Iran in the face of an arms embargo and a lot more complications. And we we actually covered that in an episode last season. And Lauren, that episode was off the job experience, off the job experience. So definitely uh, head back to that episode and listen because it's really juicy information. But essentially, this is why Murphy would want that type of interview, why she'd be there first thing in the morning to fight over it. And not, as Frank says, when we have to come up with five minutes of cultural advancements and all we have is a very Brady Christmas. (laughs) And then he looks very pointedly at the, um, the closed elevator from which she is not emerging. One of my favorite things that Corky offers is that she's going to go dig up her 1983 Red Books. There's something about that I kind of just really love. So I was really excited to hear Red Books mentioned because I really wanted to look into it. They've been around since 1903. Yeah. 116-year-old publication. And I've I've seen women who have maybe, you know, in a basement, a couple of 1983 Red Books. Yeah. Well, and here's what I find interesting. So Red Books were part of the the Seven Sisters which is a group of magazines that were traditionally aimed at married women who are homemakers rather than single and working women. The names derived from uh, the Seven Sisters from Greek myth, also known as a Pleiades. As of ooh, recently, but five of those seven magazines are still being published, which are Better Homes and Gardens, Family Circle, Good Housekeeping, Red Book, Women's Day. Oh, that makes total sense. Right? And the other two were Ladies Home Journal, which didn't just stopped in 2014, not that long ago. And poor McCall's. Oh, McCall's. Because they tried to rebrand themselves under the name Rosie by teaming up with Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> but something I found very interesting about Red Book, which is what I think is so great that um, a young, you know, up and coming female like Corky would, would read it, is that in 1992, it was revealed that the Seven Sisters had published substantially fewer articles on the topic of abortion than other popular magazines oriented toward female readership. So between 72 and 91, the Seven Sisters as a group published only 40 articles addressing it, whereas the other five magazines had published 97 articles. And Murphy Brown and Candace, per se, were uh, featured in almost all of these magazines you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. And what I particularly enjoyed was that uh, Red Book was criticized in 2000 for 
having magazines that an advocacy group named Morality and Media deemed too sexually explicit. And mm. the Red Book editor-in-chief told the New York Times, we are trying to pull away from the rest of the Seven Sisters. We're moving it slightly younger to fill the gap between the younger fashion magazines and the older full-fledged Seven Sisters. And as a consequence, Walmart began selling copies of Red Book from behind a blinder disguised to obscure the text. Whoa. <laughs> so what go Red Book. again? I missed that. I'm sorry. 2000. 2000? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Like, like dang, it's Playboy so, or something. God. Right? Corky, Corky is pushing those boundaries. Anyway, so at this point, the elevator does open. And what I wrote was, a young, curiously adult child appears. <laughs> I wrote Alex P. Keaton with a briefcase. So pretty much Alex P. Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> yes, his name is, well, actually interesting. His name, I believe, is Louis Kletter. Yeah, so we're not sure, guys, because it's really hard to hear. And obviously, our copies are not the best. Mm -hmm. And his name is not listed. His last name, per se, is not listed in the credits. Which fascinates me because he has a full name in the script itself. I'm fascinated why his his name wouldn't be listed in full in the credits anywhere. We cannot find them anywhere. And sometimes that does happen, particularly in, in sitcoms. And uh, Stephen Tobolowsky has this really great thing about how you progress up as an actor, as you work, first you have uh, a sex, like man, woman. Then you have an occupation, like the plumber. Uh-huh. And then you have maybe like doctor so-and-so. And then you have a first name. And then the tippy-tippy top is you finally have a full, full name. A full name. Yeah. I feel like uh, Lewis, the consummate journalist that he is, would have been, the character would have been very upset that he didn't get his full name. Yeah, well, obviously. Obviously. So Corky encounters him and he asks he asks if murphy brown is there right mm -hmm. okay wants, that's why i was like he wants to interview her for a story he does and corky just finds him adorable so he is a journalist at the walt whitman junior high school gazette she says she loved her journalism class cutting up clips and pasting them with headlines is that what they're doing to which lewis responds no they're studying libel and the use of fair comment and criticism defense first introduced in the supreme court case in the new york times versus sullivan <laughs> oh poor Corky <laughs> but she's just like oh I remember that and then starts pretending to write on her pad of paper <laughs> she's so not writing anything <laughs> the physical comedy so she's like oh yeah no I remember that we did that too that was so fun for reference because it's really relevant mm -hmm. New York Times versus Sullivan is where the concept of actual malice was finally defined in regards to libel oh, in which the yeah the plaintiff has to actually has the burden of proof of proving that the defamation that was alleged, uh, that the, the person who did so knew the statement was false or acted in reckless disregard of truth or falsity. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So in the concept of actual malice, it's the burden of the plaintiff to prove that the defamation that they have alleged, that the person who did so knew that the statement was false or acted in reckless disregard of its truth or falsity. So you can't just say they said something mean about me. If it's true, they can't actually call that actual malice. But if they did so with a false statement that was meant to harm them, that it's up to the plaintiff to actually prove that. The reason why in this particular case mm -hmm. is that before this decision, there were nearly $300 million in libel actions from the southern states outstanding against news organizations as part of a focused effort by Southern officials to use defamation lawsuits as a mean of preventing critical coverage of civil rights issues this is in so out-of-state publications. Right now. 
Exactly. So they had to actually define what actual malice meant and what that actual malice standard would be because people with enough money were able to silence news organizations for sharing the ugly truth of what was happening. This is really interesting because I was thinking right now that for this particular precedent, it would be really interesting to use that while we're watching the case of CNN is being sued by mm-hmm. a, this young man and his family from Kentucky for mm-hmm. libel. I, I will be very intrigued to see that uh, play out. But yeah, I, as I was reading this, I was like, oh, wow, this is um, quite relevant, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So we will we shall see, won't we? Corky lets him know that, you know, Murphy is a very busy woman, but she bets she could find the time to talk to him and says, just sit right over there, placing him in the secretary's desk, which has been empty this episode. And if I may say, this reminded me of the the funny little run that we went on with Murphy's Pony. Yes. How this person found Murphy's house. And so I was like, <laughs> again, how did he get in the building? This is such a sitcom trope. How did he get in the building? Like, I know he's dressed like an adult, but he's clearly like, where is your chaperone? Yeah. I mean, obviously things are very different after 9-11, but my brother yeah. worked at ABC for a while and it took a lot to get me in the building. Yeah. Like there were still doormen. There were still people that checked passes. Like everyone had press passes and, you know, identification to get into places is not new. (laughs) It's just it just makes me laugh because it is kind of a sitcom trope. Just like, here you go. Well, exactly. And also to uh, to Lewis's credit, I do think that he is cute enough and has the gumption to get through those barriers. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he hid behind someone. Who knows? And again, it is it is pre 9-11. So maybe the security is just some guy. Yeah, exactly. Who was just like, I don't want to hear you yap at me, child. Yeah. And if anyone listened to our interview with Barnett, Barnett Kelman, who directed this episode, definitely go back and mm-hmm. listen to those interviews. He told us that this kid who plays Lewis was in college at the time. Which is bananas to me. Bananas. He looks so tiny. He looks 15. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about we'll talk about Judd, who plays him yeah. a little bit later. But I was he is a precious bean. And I cannot believe that he was that old. So as he sits there. Of course, this is when Murphy shows up (laughs) and makes her way toward her desk, walks up and sees this tiny adult child person sitting in her desk, in her secretary's desk, to which she replies, which I have in all caps, I won't yell in all caps, which is, oh, no, that's it. Enough is enough. You tell me there isn't a conspiracy in personnel. And nobody is going to answer her. He, of course, being a, a true professional, stands up, introduces himself, and that he's here to interview her. I love that. My favorite. I love that he's always like, for a story I'm working on. For a story I'm working on. Yes, not he, just like he a knows. puff piece. Not a puff piece. Oh, no. And her response, look, little boy, I'm sure you're a nice kid, but she doesn't have time. Why doesn't he go interview David Cassidy or one of those Ghostbusters? I, I love that Murphy has no cultural reference to teenagers right now. <laughs> I, like, I love it. David Cassidy isn't even a thing that like would be her generation. <laughs> exactly. You know, like like David Cassidy is more Miles and, and Corky. <laughs> She doesn't know. Kids these days. She doesn't know. (laughs) And what I love is he says, no, he wants to interview her and that he really respected her interview with Prime Minister Budo and that she was the only one to capture her pure femininity and iron will. She says, no kidding. I love the the way she stops and kind of looks at him with this beautific face. Says, did you happen to catch Barbara Walters? He goes, oh, please. (laughs) And I love it. She's this is when she decides to, in her words, show him her inner sanctum. I love that she just builds it out for this child. <laughs> Before we go into the inner sanctum, so to speak, literally, mm-hmm. it's funny watching this now, something that never occurred to me watching it as a kid. The one thing that always 
occurred to me watching it as a kid that if I had seen this during the original run, I would have been bonkers that there was a kid relatively around my age in the Murphy Brown universe. And we'll talk about yeah. this in a lot more depth when we get to um, the Mayan Bialik episode, mm-hmm. uh, which there are tons of kids from our childhood. But mm-hmm. um, now watching it, I go, oh, I wish she was a girl. I do too. That's the first thing I wrote down. Is I, I Especially, I think, because I got that a bit of a taste of that with the revival when she meets the journalism student mm-hmm. and you see like a, a young Murphy I really, I really wish this was kind of a Hermione type character who was that yeah. who was trying to write a, a real story for the junior high gazette. You know, like I, he is wonderful and nothing against him, but He's I do great. wish from for my younger self that it was a a girl. Yeah, um, they're talking about a woman who was the first woman to head a democratic government in a Muslim majority nation. They're talking about Prime Minister uh, Benazir Bhutto, who was Prime Minister of Pakistan from eighty eight to ninety, then again from ninety three to ninety six. A lot of people thought that she was going to be the prime minister in 2008, except she was assassinated in 2007. Very controversial figure. There was a lot of talk about corruption and possible nepotism, but she was a liberal. She was a secularist. She chaired and co-chaired the Pakistan People's Party. She was also the first elected head of government to give birth while in office. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. And unfortunately, she was assassinated. Uh, Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility, but there's question about involvement from Taliban and other rogue Mm. elements. But she was a fascinating public figure, and I really would have loved to see a a young, up-and-coming child journalist female yeah. talking to Murphy Brown about this female. And, and as we're getting to the next scene, also a young girl who broke into a computer in 1989. Exactly. A little, a little lady hacker. Yeah. So we're in Murphy's office. She's really expecting, I think, some really great softball questions. What burning questions are on the mind of the Walt Whitman Gazette readership? And he just comes out right at her that he appears to have a memo written to the president of the news division saying what she thinks of all the people that she works for. Murphy is dumbstruck. What? And, you know, he hands it to her and he just begins to quote it. Jim Dial needs to be careful of becoming too comfortable in his role as senior anchor. And she looks terrified and also a little confused, you know, as if the rug has been pulled out from under her. Lewis just becomes mesmerized by her toys, particularly the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. And I love that he says he has the whole set. (laughs) So we know he has all of them. I know. I had that set, by the way. Oh, you do? I wasn't super. I mean, I watched the cartoon, but I wasn't super into them. Oh, oh, it was my life. (laughs) I had every. This was. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was the first thing that my dad was like, my daughter loves this thing. I must participate in it. So I had, I definitely had those ones. It made me really happy to see him playing with those, actually. I was more into Thundercats and Voltron. Thundercats! Anyway, we will not (laughs) fall off this edge. Murphy stands and walks to Lewis at the desk. You know, Lewis, where did you get this? He says he was fooling around with his computer and he figured out a way to crack into the news system. You know, he likes to see how other people write their copy and goes, boy, Dan Rather really hates George Bush. <laughs> now, when, when I, you know, we each do our own sections. I knew this is going to be my section. And I was like, oh, I'll look up all the stuff from 2004 and talk about how this is, you know, really sort of prescient to, you know, the future. Just mm-hmm. an offhanded joke. But actually, this is in reference, which many people may know, I didn't know, I was very young in 1988, to an incident that happened between George Bush Sr. and Dan Rather. It was when he was candidate, 
George Bush, although obviously still vice president at the time. And they were doing profiles, supposedly, of the candidates. And Iran-Contra kind of got sort of led into the intro a bit because he could watch on the monitor what stories they were working on. And uh, George Bush senior took major offense to it and sort of a little precursor to Trump in a way, yeah. which is interesting, the information that you brought in, Jesse. And he calls him on it. And mm-hmm. they have a bit of a fight. I'll, I'll put a link to the video. So much so that the next day, Dan Rather had to come on and say, you know, we do not believe that the allegations that were, you know, brought about by uh, Vice President Bush in our interview are valid. We did not do that. We were not, you know, sandbagging him. I don't know the exact quote. So it's really interesting because, Mm -hmm. of course, then in 2004, Dan Rather was eventually fired because of putting out false information that was brought up against George Bush Jr., who eventually, of course, Uh became President Bush, that I had no clue about, which is so interesting. It almost reads like a bit of a comic book rivalry. Right? Yeah. You know, well, well done, Lewis. Yes. He scooped it. He did. He knew. (laughs) Oh, we say the writers knew. Yeah. Lewis is excited because this is such a great story and it's going to knock the spelling bee story right on its butt. And Murphy starts to realize that this is <laughs> this is a thing and she really rushes to his side to hold on. Whoa, Lewis. As he quotes the memo again, which is, what did you mean by Frank Fontana sometimes gets caught up with the flash of a story and ignores the substance? These are all true statements. <laughs> That's the worst part. None of this is actually bad. It's just the kind of thing uh-huh. that you feedback not to a person's face. So mm-hmm. so Murphy blurts mm-hmm. out that, you know, until then, she's sort of being a little bit nice and trying to, like, you know, be professional. But this is it. You know, she breaks and she blurts out that she was pressured by management to write this letter. She didn't want to write it. She wrote it as gently as she knew how. And if it runs, the national press will have a field day with it. So she goes, they don't understand how much I love and respect the people I work with. Knock on the door. Beat it. And then we hear a little soft Jim (laughs) voice go, sorry. And then you see Jim walk away. (laughs) Jim's just like, mom, sorry. She said that she's going to hold on to the copy, which is funny to me because I kept thinking, does Murphy really think that this is the only copy? But th- this happens a lot throughout the whole sort of through line of the episode. And I think it's of the time. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's probably most likely that he wasn't able to save it, just print a lot of copies of it, which, again, at the end, he gives her the copies. So I think that at this point in time, mm-hmm. the notion that he has it saved somewhere, I think, is not even which is interesting. Yeah, it is. It's the first thing I thought of was that it was pointing out the generation that she's n- not thinking about the concept mm-hmm. of a digital copy. But also, I think this was a little too early for that to be. Yeah, I think so, because it's so in the structure of of the episode in the end, which we'll get to. So I thought that was fascinating, you know, from a perspective. Mm -hmm. But he takes the copy from her, which is very specific, you know, so it is, again, about the copy. He has to go because he's going to be late for homeroom, which Murphy is just like, really, what the hell is going on? <laughs> it's so painful. Yeah, she chases him out and very sort of, you know, in a very fake way, you know, well, well, well how can I contact you in case I, I do want to give you the quote? Uh, he says he's in the book, which is such an 80s, 90s things to say on 32nd Street. Well, his father's in the oh, book, yeah. but not to call after nine, he'll have his retainer in. <laughs> buddy and then the elevator closes and she's just left like oh no <laughs> it's so cute it really is so cut to phil's uh the gang is working very hard at the hero table they're all spread out they've clearly been at this they're clearly exhausted murphy enters they're all ready for her to actually sit down but she can't sit with everyone else because she has a very important and sensitive meeting that she's waiting for <laughs> 
Corky, who is sass and a half this episode, which makes me so happy, says, I'd say someone isn't pulling her weight around here and her initials are MB. <laughs> it makes me really happy. Also, her, I call it the peacock plaid mm. suit. It's got like purples and teals and everything. Corky is just popping and I love it. The door then conveniently opens. Lewis enters in a very adult suit to which Murphy says, oh, look, there's a little kid who looks like he's lost. Maybe I'll help. I love how they do dress him adult, <laughs> but like maybe it's a suit jacket and jeans or he's got sneakers on. Like there's always a little mm-hmm. little flare of something that shows that he's still a kid. Exactly. It, it's what makes it look like he's putting on an adult journalist costume. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's it's so cute. And she said, look, you saw Phil's. You've seen it. Yep, there's, you know, there's smoke. There's this, there's that. Let's go somewhere else. And he get, has this great moment of becoming a child with come on you promised so she takes him past the hero table um to which she turns back to the gang and says his parents have a nielsen box i'll be just a minute and sits him down in a corner table off to screen right and starts trying to grill him essentially uh what i really appreciate is that we see lewis's integrity yeah. his journalistic integrity very early on he quotes that freedom depends on if a journalist puts truth in first place or in second place. Now, I believe you know where I stand. <laughs> to which Murphy goes, He's, you're good. You're really good. I, what, I, what I like about this scene with Lewis is that it's clearly him being kind of inducted into the journalist world by getting to walk into Phil's, getting to sit down with Murphy, actually get to trade blows about integrity with her. And then Phil walks up asking if this is Miles' replacement. And that's the first one when I realized I hadn't seen Miles yet. Oh, yeah. It hadn't hit me until he said that. I was like, oh, is Miles not, is there only like one child prodigy allowed per episode? No, what got me with this was that we learned that Phil's doesn't take credit cards. Well, that's what I like. So Phil clearly is also good with kids in that really fun way that kids like where he treats you like an adult. Yeah. So he says he's going to tell Lewis something he tells all young journalists who come into his bar for the first time. We don't take credit cards. We cook with only two spices, salt and pepper, and we only serve one type of lettuce. His name is Iceberg. Now, welcome to Phil's. What'll it be? <laughs> and then what I like is that he turns to Murphy and they says, how about you, Lewis? I've got my meatloaf on special. It's been in heavy demand, but I think I can get you a slice. Lewis decides he'll just have a cheeseburger, to which Phil turns to Murphy and says, he's shrewd, Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that someone like Phil gives him kind of the adult handshake yeah. experience. Phil's a really cool dude. He is. And... Like the proverbial imp fairy child, Miles has heard his name and appears. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 probably like Beetlejuice, say his name a few times and he shows up. <laughs> he's like, what? And so my ears are burning. He comes over and tells her that they need her over at the table. They're um, going through the indictments in the Reagan years and she's the only one who knows them by heart. I love that. <laughs> and then because he sat down at the table between them and then Grant does this amazing turn and look at Lewis and says, who have we here? A nephew? I love that Miles is so immediately into making fun of Murphy. Like, he's so quickly into the joke of this that he says, I don't know, Lewis. She's got a lot of offers. There are a lot of offers on the table for her. What do you offer you, Murphy? A top locker and a note to get out of gym. And then Miles does an arm behind his back, twist his arm, proud of his joke gag that really took me out of the moment because I was really laughing great. so hard at Grant Shaw just living for himself. Yeah, considering Grant doesn't do a lot in this episode, he, that's a real standout moment to me. It's so, uh, that's, it's a true Miles messing with Murphy moment and I love it. But then he bends down as a true professional and says he's buying lunch that tells Phil to give him the tab 
And as soon as he starts walking away, Lewis says, he's buying lunch. And in the memo, you said he was cheap. Voices carry, Lewis. <laughs> and then she says a, a very important quote, which is that any network that is busier counting beans and finding good stories is doomed to mediocrity. Yeah, she's like, I didn't call him cheap. Yeah, she's like, it's very specific. I didn't call him cheap, but I did say that sometimes a story is more important. Then we have this lovely moment mm. for Murphy where she says she's going to give him a better story. And this is where we actually get the first real taste of the Betty Ford story. And kudos to Barnett and crew for making this what seems to be the heart wrench reveal that it is by really just focusing on her. And Candace does basically just a one take of memory. Basically, she has an interview with Noriega coming up in Panama. She was at this point drinking a lot just to stay ahead of the panic that she had before every interview, convinced that she wasn't going to be able to do it, making it her way toward that first question, the question that she knows is going to be the thing. And I love this moment of vulnerability where she acknowledges those nerves that everyone has, even Mm -hmm. if they're at the top of their game. Yeah. And she said she was convinced she'd never be able to do it. She was going to have to get on a plane to Panama. So she opened up a bottle of scotch and then she remembers nothing. And she woke up in her home shaking. And she says she didn't get on a plane to Panama, but she did get on a plane to Betty Ford. And it was the hardest thing she's ever done. And something we'll find out later is that Jim had a huge part in that as well. I I love this. I love that we get some history as in backstory as to, you know, how she got to Betty Ford. I go back and forth between she said she got on a plane because of the poeticness of the story, because mm-hmm. we know she didn't. Yeah. Because Jim drove her. Mm-hmm. Or it was driving in a plane kind of a thing. But I think it's just the poeticness of it. Exactly. I, I do also wonder if it's a Jim drove her and got her on the airplane. But then he had such a, like, if she got off at the other end, she could back out. Yeah. So I, it doesn't quite fit for me. Yeah. But I do believe that's the poetic nature of the story she's trying to sell him, yeah, essentially. Exactly. But it's a, it's such a beautiful, you don't know that the joke right after is coming because it's so grounded and such a beautiful account of someone's vulnerability. Yeah. And it's so great with uh, Judd playing Lewis because... He, mm-hmm. he goes, yeah, like a little kid. So it like breaks it. And it's such a great. <laughs> I like the memo better. Yeah. The timing is great. The timing is really it, great. it really is. Because also because he's listening with such rapt attention, like kudos to this young actor, because a lot of times the things that take you out of someone's acting is when they're not speaking. Mm-hmm. And he was just he's so intently listening. And he her. has a good point. It is sort of a dime a dozen story. At this point, a lot of mm-hmm. people, a lot of famous people had gone to Betty Ford. Yeah. She, well, she yells at him being like, what, you like the memo better? Are you kidding me? And he says, another celebrity in Betty Ford. That's strictly page three. Yeah. No, he he knows what he's got. Mm-hmm. And then Murphy realizes that she has some other things at her advantage. And she asks, do you like football? Redskins locker room. Have you ever been there? She's like, I could t- pick you up after school. Uh, do you know what kind of car I have? A Porsche Lewis, the big one. <laughs> and it fades out of Phil's. And then uh, we go to the townhouse. Eldon is actually painting. It's the first time we see him his work. Yeah. We've never really, I feel like we never see his work again until the revival, if you think about it. Yeah. He's never actually exactly. painting anything. I mean, maybe you might see him with a roller in his hand, but still that's not painting a picture, so to speak. So this is really interesting. This, I really i was like wait a second i don't think i remember seeing his detail yeah i never seen this and it looks like he's kind of like painting something that would be in the room which is really unique and interesting there's like a Mm -hmm. curtain and a bust which uh, could be the bust in the foyer but not really and then maybe a mirror of some kind so we hear a breaking of a car and it's obviously really 
messing with Eldon's concentration, we can tell. Murphy comes in and sort of very, you know, fakely nicely as she does, yells out, day out of the, the actual street. Don't want to break any laws. And then she just slams the door with mm. all of her might, which again, jars Eldon and goes into her real self about how annoyed she is. Obviously, Eldon is also annoyed by this kid. He's put 47 miles on in the driveway. She used to have a clutch. Eldon's mm-hmm. hand is no longer steady. And they pretty much barb back and forth how, no, I have it worse. No, I have it worse. No, I have it worse. She's been taking him around town to bribe him. She took him to Andy Rooney's tailor and to an arcade. Sort of the spectrum of the kid experience. She's done it all. Uh, I would have played Miss Pac-Man. But anyway, mm-hmm. Lewis comes in. He's like super high. I wrote on sugar and journalism. He's just like, <laughs> this is the best thing that could ever happen to him. <laughs> That's so accurate. Um, she took him to the press club and he's just like, Mr. Bernicke, Mr. Bernicke. You know, he just wants to tell someone all the cool stuff that he got to do because obviously he's going to think it's totally cool. Also, Eldon hates this. Um, yeah. He makes him guess who is at the press club. He says Connie Francis, which I wrote is the most on-brand thing Eldon may have ever said. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like he's brought up Connie Francis before. You know, they saw Sam Donaldson and Lewis asked for his autograph and he said no. Murphy yelled him and everyone looked like he loves every single moment of this. Oh, this is the dream, man. Murphy wants to talk about the memo, but Lewis feels that that's been situated. That's been taken care of. He doesn't seem to think he's being bribed at mm-hmm. all. It's just Murphy thinks he's cool because he's never going to change his mind because he's a real journalist. And Murphy obviously knows that. Bless his sweetheart. But Murphy puts it down on the line, you know, if he has a price, like anything, anything. And <laughs> pretty much uh, Lewis... Uh, hems and haws over it but he kind of needs a date to the eighth grade dance (laughs) they're gonna have a dj oh there's so many problems with this (laughs) as soon as it's sort of revealed what he's actually asking eldon kind of just sort of pops out from the foyer like a cartoon character (laughs) just really great like oh this is interesting and murphy is sort of figuring this out she's like go to the dance no more memo and just when you think like she won't consider it she kind of almost considers it She almost goes there. She does because she's so desperate. And Lewis lets her know she will not be the tallest girl there. Eldon offers to drive. Eldon is loving this. (laughs) He's such a jerk in this. I love it so much. But the moment she almost considers it, she goes, no, 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 no. She, 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 She can't do it. You know, she wrote the memo. She can face the consequences of her actions. But then sits down in one of those great black chairs and... I love this outfit. We haven't talked about this outfit. It's really great. There's a lot of in this season kind of these sort of pale tones with a pop of like orange, which I feel is very 90s. Like I remember going to the limited with a gift card Mm -hmm. and buying nothing but like pale sort of, you know, uh, skin type colors and olive tones, like a whole tons of it. Mm -hmm. And so Murphy, very much like a child, just, you know, it says how it doesn't matter. He can just go. But kicks his briefcase under her chair like he's going to not notice. Oh, Murphy, it's not her finest hour. And she's super cocky about it. She crosses her legs, big smile on her face. And and Lewis becomes like a little kid. And he's like, fine, but I'm not going without my briefcase. And really calls Murphy super low. She's really, really low for, for doing that. Yeah. And, uh, and we're stuck here. Now, something that I would like to talk about, if people may not realize, is now this episode was supposed to be the first episode of the season, as we've talked about before. But it was pushed Mm -hmm. because it's based on a real event. Yep. Almost actually up to 30 years ago this month, funny enough. It was March 1989. And a memo came out from Brian Gumbel, 
who was one of the co-hosts of the Today Show with Jane Pauley mm-hmm. at the time. And it was exactly what this was, a memo that he'd been asked to write to the head of the news division to write a critique of his fellow journalists on the show. And he really, you know, didn't keep anything uh, hidden, probably because he didn't think anyone was going to see it. Funny enough, he had nothing bad to say about Jane Pauley. Aww. His issues were with other people like Gene Shalit, who did the film critiques. He had issues with the weatherman, Willard Scott, which he said, holds the show hostage to his assortment of whims, wishes, birthdays, and bad taste. (laughs) Yeah, just to give you a sense of how caustic this memo was. And someone stole it. It was a lot of these articles were, you know, NBC saying this is theft, but was picked up by the national press, as Murphy said, and was made very embarrassing for these people who then had to go to work every day with someone who said terrible things about them, yeah, which they now are aware and the public knows. And they were made aware of it before it went public, but still, it's really sort of awkward. Yeah. Now, eventually, funny enough, or oddly enough, Jane Pauley left, even though nothing that in the memo was said badly about her, it still was quite awkward. And then also you had the news division bringing in Deborah Norville, who was younger and they were really high on. She replaced one of the other journalists on the Today Show. I could see how the writers would go, wow, this is such a really great thing. We should have this happen to Murphy. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just it's the perf. it's within their subject matter already. And it's something that hasn't been done before. Like it's it's such a good story. And it really not only is it already within their the scope of their the show that they have but it's so human i mean we talk about it now with people with you know s- sending an email to everyone instead you know replying all to an email rather than to one person like this is stuff that is so human it's a thing that we're all worried about that's something we say under duress or in frustration or just the thing that we think but would never want someone else to know we're all afraid of that so it was i mean it was made for murphy to adapt yeah and the, the memo was literally stolen from Gumbel's computer, supposedly off a file, um, most likely, Ugh. though, by an NBC employee uh, given to a reporter for Newsday as opposed to a kid. So what was great was they took this and then made it something a little more creative. Well, and also safer. Yeah. Not as in like safe writing, but it made it kept our our beloved characters potentially safer from actual harm. Yeah. And eventually we will get to something into an episode in season three which we'll reference actually later, where someone is sort of leaking information to the national tattler and Murphy is trying to figure out who it is. So that's a good mm-hmm. story. But this is a different story that they're trying to tell, which we'll get to when, when Lewis is sort of deflated that he doesn't get to do what oh. what he wants to do. We baby yeah. Lewis. So coming out of the townhouse, we find ourselves back at the bullpen. So we're back to Corky, Frank, and Jim at the table Still trying to make this decade in review show happen, doing their best. They have the student revolt in Beijing, which for those of you following along at home, that's a 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. And then Vanessa Williams comes up, to which Corky wants to know if they have to do it, because some of us are still trying to forget. So obviously, Corky is our our pageant queen. She was a runner-up who became the title because someone else had to leave due to a scandal. So I find it very interesting that Corky doesn't want to talk about a crowned Miss America having to leave due to a scandal. Yeah, but do you think it's because of what the scandal is? 
Well, so that's a thing. Well, are we sure that pictures in Penthouse that were found without her permission are worse than the implied bestiality? No, I don't think it is. But I wonder in <laughs> virginal Corky's mind at this Corky moment land. where she is in her mm-hmm. development as a woman. Yeah. Oh, that totally. she would see it that way. Also, to be clear to anyone uh, who might have been confused, we're not saying the bestiality comment is about Corky's fictional scenario, not Vanessa no, Williams. No, no, no. So Vanessa Williams is she was the first African American woman crowned Miss America, and this was in eighty fours, so four eighty four. So she was Miss America in nineteen eighty four, crowned in September nineteen eighty three, and then not that many weeks before she was done as Miss America, a scandal arose. Penthouse magazine bought and published unauthorized nude photographs of her, and she was pressured to relinquish her title. And first of all, so many issues with that and her own agency over her body and the fact that she was not the one, like, so many issues with that. But the thing that I do find positive coming out of this was that 32 years later, in September 2015, uh, she received a public apology from the former Miss America CEO, Sam Haskell, for the way she was treated in this. And she actually then served as head judge for Miss America that year. I mean, really, she had the last laugh because she's had such a successful acting and music career. What I find interesting is that when they learned that Penthouse would be publishing those photos, Miss America gave her 72 hours to resign. And it says she later stated that, quote, the heightened spectacle and circus of it all was crazy. I had people saying, fight for the crown, fight for the crown, and people chanting, don't give up, don't don't secede. So Vanessa Williams rebounded. Actor, artist, recording artist. She faced a long period of betrayal, humiliation on a very grand scale. And the fact that this was something that was done against her will that was taken from her and published that she was punished for other people exploiting her private photos is is disgusting um essence magazine stated that she was a subject of quote public shaming and bullying from the public at large Mm -hmm. and the philadelphia inquirer noted that her career and reputation tanked overnight she went from being america's darling to a national disgrace the fact that this woman had to wait 32 years to get a public apology from the people who allowed Penthouse to exploit her that way is really unfortunate. I'm glad it finally happened, but she'd been led to believe they had been destroyed and she never signed a release permitting pr- publication or use of them. So anyway, yes, Corky is uh, not wanting to talk about this story any longer. I'm sure it's been, you know, if Corky had a Facebook, this would have been all over her Facebook <laughs> for years. You know, like it's the thing she doesn't want to see anymore. And at this moment, Murphy arrives, and Murphy is just full of compliments. My buddies, my pals, and seems to just pull these amazing flamboyant compliments just out of thin air that she's just, you know what? You know, I think I need to just tell you this today. To Frank, she says, you know, you're, I don't think I've ever told you, but your pieces are among the most substantive in network television. And Jim, just driving over here, it occurred to me that for all the years you've been behind your desk, you've always remained in touch with your audience. And Corky, what can I say? (laughs) She slowly walks behind Corky. What can I say? You've grown. (laughs) She's trying very, very hard. And at this moment, as and what I love is that Corky is clearly like, what? Everyone's looking very suspicious. Corky knows that she can't come up with anything for her. And Miles arrives. Barrels, just barrels right in. 
says, okay, Murphy, I got your message. And then starts saying, it's NBC, isn't it? It's a coffee maker thing? Fine, we'll put a damn espresso machine in your office. To which Murphy says, Miles, that was one of the finest examples of authoritative problem solving I've ever seen. <laughs> and this is one of those moments where clearly everyone thinks she's lost her mind. She looks like she, everyone's looking at her like she has three heads. Now she has something to share with them. And what I love is this is such a like old sitcom trope of like, like Cleaver style, like, hey, Frank's like, what's the problem? And she's like, slugger? And they all are just so like perfectly concerned for her. And she goes and sits with like on the edge of a desk and faces them. She's preparing herself and they're all just so like wholeheartedly concerned for her her well-being. Yeah, but what I love about this is that she could just be kind of like stereotypical Murphy, but she Mm -hmm. says, Thanks for caring about me. And you can see that oh, it's just like yeah. she hates that like they're all concerned something's wrong with her and now she has to tell them this terrible thing. It's kind of it's lovely. Yeah, that's the thing I, I like about it. So she sits on the desk, she sees all of them, and as they're saying, you know, what's the problem? Slugger? And they're all looking so perfectly, innocently caring for her. She says, Thanks for caring about me. You really are good friends. To which Miles then puts the final nail in her emotional coffin with more than friends family and it's just the most like cleaver family photo moment and she says so you know here's the deal she got pressured to write a memo she never wanted and that kid you know that kid who's been following me around like he hacked my computer and um so she's just going to share it with them and she knows that they'll take it as the good honest criticism that it was intended and what she just kind of very like glibly just hands them each a copy of it and then just starts very helpfully cleaning up the table i love that little i love that she's she's like do 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 and just picking things up and they all start looking at it and jim just goes murphy and she's behind the coffee station she's like yes jim (laughs) in the same like very helpful tone he says there's a smudge over this word what is it uh stiff (laughs) stiff you say yes Stiff. And my favorite is that his ah, stiff, is as <laughs> stiffly said as possible. <laughs> and I just wrote in my notes, wow, what a well-coordinated group of speed readers. They all, you know, flip to the second page at the same time, but they read that memo real fast. Yeah, but it's also really funny that they it's so flip good. in the same time. It's so, it's such good comedic timing. Uh, I But I believe that Brian Gumbel's memo was four pages. So two pages, or really a page and a half, it looks like. Pretty good, Murph. Exactly. She didn't go on at length. Mm-mm. Um, she was, unfortunately, very efficient in her expression of her beliefs. Yes. Um, and they all kind of put it down, and they all look at her and look at each other. And she says, now, how about that decade in review? <laughs> and they all exit to the right. And we actually see inside that section for a second as she tries to follow them away from her yeah that awkward section which is like we're never here we're never but now we're all going this way yeah (laughs) Uh, so the next day murphy comes off the elevator and what i sort of feel is kind of a version of her incognito outfit but it's very specific like it's almost exactly what she was wearing Mm -hmm. After they had sort of the Donahue thing in the first yes. season and and they had a big fight on the air and she's embarrassed, doesn't want to probably, you know, press or pictures. So this is mm-hmm. feels like her 
I don't want anyone to find me because I feel bad and I've done something wrong, mm-hmm. which is sort of knockabout clothes and a baseball hat and a little jacket and kind of, you know, not really sweats, but like Murphy's version of sweats. Yep. As opposed to her, I'm secretly going through a crisis of having a child, mm-hmm. trench coat and scarf, incognito outfit. <laughs> it's very specific, guys. It's just hilarious to me. So she she runs into office worker Ray. Office worker Ray. Office worker Ray. Uh, slash Bob, actually. Uh, Murphy thinks his name is Ray, but his real name is Bob. And the crazy My part... Bob. It's Bob. The crazy part is, is that this is his second appearance, this actor. But also, this run, this is now a running gag I didn't realize was a running gag. Because in season three, she calls him Ray and Miles goes, his name is Bob. <laughs> yes. So I didn't realize that it was a recurring joke. I thought it was just a new thing. So um, welcome back, Ray slash Bob. Welcome, uh, he, Ray Bob. He's, Ray Bob, there his name is Ray Bob. Ray Bob. So he's gotten her all the papers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and the Walt Whitman Gazette. <laughs> uh, but the memo is not in the paper. And Murphy is super excited, but then freaks out that it wasn't in the paper because she went through all of that for nothing. Mm-hmm. So Murphy goes into her office, and then Lewis arrives. Also, no idea what's on the dartboard. No idea. I could not clock it. I can't clock it, and I don't know if it's just because our... Our versions are not high quality anymore. Yeah, maybe. Or it's just hard to see. So if anyone knows what it says, please let us know. And Murphy calls him Horace Greeley. Which is a very uh, far historical pull <laughs> for Murphy. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was an American author and statesman who was the founder and editor of the New York Tribune. He died in 1872. <laughs> good job, Murph. So good job, Murph. So uh, Murphy pretty much like rakes him over the coals, you know, that how could he, you know, he do this? And, and, and Lewis is really sad. And he pretty much hands her a copy of all the memos in a manila envelope and says the butt brain editor felt it was boring and long and that a food fight was better. And he's just so crushed <laughs> because he just wanted to be a real reporter. He wanted to get to the truth. And he's just so upset. You know, it, it, what they want to publish isn't news. It's infotainment. It's another sort of running theme that we have throughout Murphy Brown, sort of that balance between entertainment and news, Mm -hmm. which is very relevant today, which we've spoken about, because now there really doesn't seem to be a lot of that line. Nope. Is very much blurred between entertainment and news. And Lewis just wants to give up. And Murphy confesses that it's definitely happened to her. She feels horrible when her special on acid rain gets beaten by it's a good Arbor Day Charlie Brown. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not a special. Love that. And that you just have to keep going. The Cronkites and the Brinkleys and the Copples, you know, they didn't cash it in. And she confesses no. that, you know, many times this week she wanted to strangle him, but she always respected him. And that there's there's always hope and not to let the butt brains win. I wrote that down solely so I can make a meme of that. <laughs> Don't let the butt brains win. Don't let the butt brains win. He knows that she's right. And he does, and he feels better. He wants to know if she wants to go play Nintendo at her house. That was one thing, too, we didn't mention. There's a new box of 1989 Nintendo, which I remember that console. Oh, yeah. In Murphy's townhouse. She obviously bought him Nintendo. (laughs) You know, he thinks they're going to go back to just hanging out and being friends. But Murphy handles it in a really great way, you know, that he doesn't have time for kids' games. He has a beat to cover. He has all this confidence again that he's got a a new story he's going to work on. It's called When Good Hall Monitors Go Bad. 
She's so proud. Yeah, and they shake hands and they say goodbye, and but she first wants her car keys back. I don't know how he still has her car keys. Okay, so this is actually even more so than how did he find her with the, like, you have to suspend your disbelief in the show trope. I uh, More than him finding her was, how has he spent this much time with her alone that she's bought him a Nintendo for her place, that he's had her car keys this whole time? Like, there's a certain thing I'm like, where are his parents? They obviously <laughs> both work. He He's had to be an adult. Oh, yeah. He's a latchkey kid. Yeah. So as he's leaving, she walks out back into the bullpen and then very swiftly tries to walk back into her office because the gang is in formation and walking toward her. Mm-hmm. Um, Corky has an amazing peach suit with a red scarf that I could never pull off, but she looks great, of course. They stop her because they need to talk to her, except for Frank, who is looking anywhere but in her direction behind Jim. And Jim says that they've put themselves in her shoes and, well, they've decided to forgive her. After all, they can't hate her forever. And my favorite quote is, although the idea of one week was kicked around. Miles admits that he knows they're not, that they all know that they're not, they're not perfect. And some of what she said was valid, which Jim goes, oh, which valid. things, Miles. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, Frank takes off because he's still moping about he's like well i don't know if i could have lunch with you because of my daredevil schedule (laughs) to which corky leans in and says frank's having a little problem he's finding it hard to be as mature as the rest of them and so murphy walks over and what i love is that murphy's had all episode to figure out how to deal with a a man child (laughs) and now she's got it in reverse and she walks over to frank and just wants to know what he wants to which he tries to get her parking spot. And she says, absolutely not. And then we get the net, much like Lewis, but I don't want anything else. And she follows him into into her office, offering a Nintendo game and anything else that he may want. And we fade. It's funny that the last time I watched it, I, I caught Murphy offering a fruit of the month club. <laughs> yes. So very quickly, Lewis is played by Judd Trichter. Uh, he was a child actor for a very short time. He's from New York, which we can guess from his accent. Yeah. But he eventually went on to get a BA in English literature at Yale. And he's the author of a science fiction novel, which is quite popular from what my understanding is, called Love in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Mm-hmm. And it was published in February 2015 by St. Martin's Press. Go Judd. We have heard from Barnett himself that uh, he was a joy to work with. Yes. So thank you for listening to this episode. Um, please um, find us and follow us and interact with us on social media. We're at Murphy Brown Pod at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and Murphy Brown Pod at gmail.com, as well as MurphyBrownPod.com. Yeah. And if you want to listen to songs from and inspired by Murphy Brown, we have created a Spotify playlist, Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist. You can find the link on our FAQ on our website, or you can find it yourself in the search bar. And definitely stay tuned to our Patreon if you are a member of our Patreon, which helps us literally put on the show. We wouldn't be able to without you guys. There'll be some extra content. We already know that already. (laughs) Yep. Um, From this episode that you can listen to and have an expansive view of the memo that got away. And the 80s. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And speaking of the 1980s, our next episode will be TV or not TV with the very 1980s star Morgan Fairchild. Oh, yeah, I'm so excited. I knew you would be. (laughs) So please join us, and we'll see you soon for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) 